Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Bander Podcast, where birders talk birding. Almost everyone who's been birding for a while has no trouble believing that the population of many bird species and the total number of birds we see while we're out birding is, is decreasing. Conservation of habitat and birds in general is super important to me, and I bet to most of you. From a historical perspective, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918 was arguably the most important piece of conservation legislation that's happened in the Western Hemisphere. And until recently, I really didn't know very much about the treaty. Will McLean Greeley, the great-great-nephew of Senator George McLean and the author of a new biography about Senator McLean, reached out to me recently, and I was at first reluctant to have him on the podcast. I'm contacted by lots of authors of books on topics peripherally related to birding, and at first glance, this seemed like a stretch. Still, I looked into it a bit and became more and more convinced that birders might and probably should be interested in this story. Senator McLean was a freshman senator from Connecticut, elected to the Senate in 1911, and was in the Senate as a progressive Republican in the Teddy Roosevelt mold, while Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat, was president. A lot was going on in the world at this time. World War I was in full swing, and the Spanish influenza epidemic that killed millions around the world was terrifying both those people in the war and almost everyone else. It would have been easy to look the other way, at the impending extinction of birds like snowy egret, trumpeter swan, and whooping crane, and other species that were being hunted to near extinction for the feather trade, because it was just more important things going on in the world. That didn't stop Senator McLean, President Wilson, and others from passing a creative and controversial international treaty with England and Canada to make the killing of many species of birds illegal. The use of an international treaty was a creative and necessary way to overcome the state's rights advocates that prevented federal government from regulating hunting in states. This type of true bipartisan legislation seems almost unfathomable in today's federal government, where, in my opinion, preventing the opposing party from any success seems more important than governing in the best interests of the country. I've started reading the book, and I'm really enjoying learning about Senator McLean and the governmental and business workings of that era. I'll write a book review on the Bird Banner website after I finish. Until then, help me welcome Will McLean Greeley to the Bird Banner podcast. I think you'll learn some cool stuff. I certainly did. And I think you'll enjoy hearing his story. Will, thanks for being on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ed. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. Before before we talk about your book, Will just wrote a new book. I've got it right in front of me. It's Connecticut Yankee Goes to Washington, Senator George P. McLean, Birdman of the Senate by Will McLean Greeley, middle name, his last name. So interesting stuff. But we'll get to that. Tell me about yourself. Who are you, Will? Are you uh, a conservationist, a birder, just an author? You know, how how'd this all happen? Well, this is my first book, Ed, and it grew out of a family reunion. Um there were about 125 of us, and I put together a PowerPoint presentation on my great-great-uncle, Senator George P. McLean, to share with my extended family. Um, very little was known about this individual. Many of us share this middle name of McLean. I'd say almost a third of the people at this reunion. And so I wanted to learn this man's life story. I was acquainted with a few highlights that he was involved in this 
major bird conservation legislation, but I knew very little else about him. Um, he was in the U.S. Senate for 18 years, uh, governor of Connecticut for two years, and I thought there, there's got to be an arc to this man's life that's, that's worth digging into. So when I retired in uh, 2018, um, I decided to devote a good amount of time to understanding his life story. I consulted some 300 sources. And with the assistance of my publisher, the Rochester Institute of Technology Press, um, I've uncovered uh, a fascinating story of a neglected person in, in history, particularly for people who are interested in birds. Yeah, I, I uh, this uh, Migratory Bird Protection Act, I think that's the name of the act, uh, Migratory Bird, yeah. that sounds right, uh, of 1918, you know, pretty uh, busy time in U.S. history, 1918, flu epidemic, World War One. you mentioned those things, so pretty busy time, uh, but also, what was happening with birds, and, and you know, George McLean, what, why was he interested? How did he come to be a, an advocate for birds, of all things? Yeah. Well, he grew up in a subsistence farm in rural Connecticut outside of Hartford. Uh, it was an idyllic setting. He was born in 1857. So imagine the 1860s and 70s in rural Connecticut. He came to love nature. Um, he loved birds. He loved all kinds of wildlife. He didn't like farming, though. And this was a subsistence farm. And he resolved that he wanted to make something of his life and um, move out of farming. And so he went to Hartford after he graduated from high school and um, discovered a career in the law and found many mentors who saw in him a, um, a very able, ambitious, personable young man with a promising future in politics. So he had a love of nature as a young person I think there was also a fundamental change in his outlook when he got to high school. He discovered some of these uh, romantic poets and transcendental writers like Emerson, Longfellow, Thoreau. And for him, nature took on an almost spiritual, sacred importance. Um, he came from a very strong religious background, but I think that was he took that religious zeal and energy and put it into his view of nature and saw that it was uh, people's responsibility to um, be stewards of nature and to protect nature. And he was appalled at the overhunting of birds that was getting increasingly alarming um, as he grew into adulthood. I, th I listened to a brief interview or somewhere, uh, maybe in the introduction to your book, read about the pump shotgun just coming into effect. I mean, you know, we, I, I know I think of in military history, machine guns and automatic, semi-automatic weapons and things were like different level of killing ability. But for a hunter, you know, not having to reload your double barrel shotgun every time you had shot two shots could fire, you know, seven or eight uh, rounds in short order uh, had to, you know, be a huge impact, especially for the the people hunting the egrets and, and on the, on the uh, rookeries in the Southeast and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were really four key factors that were putting pressure on bird populations in the late 1800s, early 1900s. You know, first, birds have always been hunted as a food source since the beginning of time. But sometime after the American Civil War, it became fashionable to wear feathers 
primarily on women's hats. But the third factor was a population explosion after the Civil War. Uh, there were 32 million people in the U.S. in 1860, and by 1900, that number was 72 million. And so there were more mouths to feed, more heads to put hats on. But as you said, the, the real supercharging factor in the success of hunting was the advent of the shotgun around 1890. And so in a short order of time, hunters were just transformed into virtual killing machines. And the demand for birds as a food source uh, was, was very strong and growing. And then this fashion of um, hats also created the feather trade. And so hunters responded to this demand by um, excessively hunting whenever they could. Added to that, Ed, is a pernicious factor that as the population of these birds went down, the price for the feathers went up, which only accelerated this, uh, this level of hunting that was so out of control. And birds were on the fast track to extinction. Um, I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners know about the passenger pigeon. Mm -hmm. um, the most abundant bird in North America, some three to five billion birds uh, went extinct in 1914. Uh, the Carolina parakeet, uh, an endemic uh, parrot in the United States also went extinct. And many more like the snowy egret, um, the flamingo, the whooping crane, the trumpeter swan, all valued uh, for feathers were also on the fast track to extinction. But here's the problem. Every state was free to set its own hunting laws for birds and, and enforce them however they wanted. For instance, the state of Missouri, this is the most egregious example I could find, in the late 1800s, they had one hunting law on, and that was you could not hunt on Sunday. <laughs> but otherwise you could hunt whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, however much. And so they had millionaire hunter clubs all along the Mississippi Flyway in Missouri, where people came and hunted in the spring while birds were nesting. Mm -hmm. And so this was the kind of situation that McLean faced when he entered the U.S. Senate in 1911, was how to stem or stop this excessive hunting that was in the hands of the states. So this was early. I mean, he, he started in the Senate in 1911. Yes. And th this bill went into effect in 1918. So he was a pop. He was not like a, a senior senator. You know, he was the junior senator from Connecticut, I'm sure. He wasn't uh, uh, leading some committee or in, in, in a powerful position. You're right. And when he uh, entered the Senate in 1911, there was a custom then that you didn't speak for a year. His maiden speech was on the topic of federal protection for birds. So this was obviously close to his heart. He had a passion for this cause. And it took him and others seven years to pass this legislation uh, after it was uh, introduced in 1911. Mm -hmm. It morphed and changed over this period of time to respond to the very legitimate objections that people had. Primary among them was the state's rights advocates who argued that the federal government had no constitutional authority to intervene in state game hunting laws. And this is at the crux of the problem that McLean and others faced. Mm. And I describe in my book 
um, what I think is the genius of how they overcame. Yeah, migra theory. Migratory Bird Act. That's why right. it's called the Migratory Bird Act. I'm sure that plays a role. Well, the key word is treaty. Mm. Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So they put this uh, legislation in the form of treaties between and among nations. And the treaty power is cannot be invalidated by the U.S. Supreme Court. It's called the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution. So that was the workaround that McLean and others figured out over a period of time, over a period of years of negotiating this legislation. Many of your, your uh, listeners have probably heard of the Weeks-McLean Law of 1913. That was the forerunner to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, but it only pertained to the United States. And so it was limited for two reasons. First of all, we, we all know that birds migrate. And so protecting birds just here in the U.S. would not really be a fully effective. But, but secondly, um, the limitation was that um, this would, was going to be struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. McLean knew this. The opponents knew this. Uh, they felt quite sure that the states' rights advocates would win. But by putting it in a context of treaties, the Supremacy Clause uh, allowed for this legislation to pass, and it brought in other nations, Canada, Great Britain. Ultimately, now we have many more countries that are, have signed the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So it was effective for that reason as well. Cool. And, and you talked about the value of feathers. I read somewhere... Uh, that at the peak of the feather trade, uh, that the plume feathers of snowy egrets were more valuable than gold on a on a you know ounce by ounce basis. So I mean, and and birders know that you know birds like snowy egrets nest in rookeries. That's just like uh, if you've visited Florida or Georgia or you know big swamps in the south. Uh, even today, there is not unusual to see a, a colony of hundreds of egrets and herons and often a mixed species, but a lot of snow egrets included. Uh, so it was just like shooting, you know, egrets on their nest. I mean, bam, 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 bam. And that's when they had the big plume feathers in breeding season. Right. The, um, Ed, the most valuable cargo on the Titanic when it sank in 1912 was a shipment of feathers bound from London to New York City for the feather trade. Um, there were 128,000 people employed in making hats in, in the United States in 1920. They were responding to market needs where this fashion of putting hats, uh, feathers on hats was very strong. Many of these were immigrant women, entrepreneurs that came to this country and they had this skill. But it wasn't just women's fashions. Um, McLean decried on the Senate floor a man's coat that was made out of hummingbird skins. So there were hundreds of hummingbirds sacrificed for this technicolor dream coat that someone had that cost $10,000 in 1910. So that's how um, out of control the states were in allowing people to hunt whatever they wanted. And that was perfectly legal to make a man's coat or a vest out of hummingbird skins. And it was this type of slaughter, though, that appalled McLean and others and motivated him to persevere over the seven-year period to, to find a solution to this excessive hunting. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, it was uh, primarily in a hunters and individual commercial hunters 
uh, act at the beginning, but it's morphed into uh, uh, including corporations and the unintentional killing of of uh, birds. How, how yes. is, do you know? Can do you know the story of how that sort of came to be? The Migratory Bird Treaty Act has been in effect since 1918. It's still our watershed bulwark legislation that protects birds. It has morphed and changed over this 100-year period to respond to the different threats that birds face. Uh, sometime in the 1970s, this legislation was first applied to corporations and organizations as opposed to individuals. When it initially uh, was released in, in 1918, it pertained really to hunters and individual. But the threats to birds changed over time and now it is, um, and still is, um, applied against organizations, oil companies, timber uh, companies, developers. The largest fine that was ever levied under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was against Exxon for the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Mm -hmm. And that was an unintentional event. And that has become something of a lightning rod, this issue of unintentional take versus intentional take mm -hmm. yeah i know that uh in the the prior administration the trump administration that was not that declared not that they were not going to enforce the unintent the law to uh against unintentional uh killing of birds and then most recently i just read that uh, the current administration is going to resume the uh prior uh interpretation that it, it also includes uh you know unintentional uh killing so that that's kind of cool the other thing that i thought was really interesting is that mclean george mclean he was a pretty conservative republican uh and he he came this happened this act went into uh, effect during woodrow wilson a, a staunch democratic president administration so you have a young a young senator from one party working with uh, the president of another party and somehow getting it done. I mean, that's kind of how government's supposed to work. You know, it kind of seems almost foreign to, be, to, the, to the last decade or so. One of the themes that's really resonated with people as I talk um, about my book around the country is the bipartisan nature of this achievement, passing the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, you're correct that McLean was a Republican, but this was the era of the Theodore Roosevelt Republican, uh, the progressive reformer in the early 1900s. But he formed an alliance, a very effective working alliance with then President Woodrow Wilson, who was a Democrat. And the two came together to overcome decades of opposition to federal legislation to protect birds. This had, this had been introduced many times over the previous decades, but they resolved to get this legislation passed, despite the fact that the U.S. was at war in Europe um, in 1918. This was actually our peak participation in that war. Mm -hmm. There was a global flu pandemic. Um, we all know about that. Flu, um, sure. There was significant social and political unrest in the nation. This was an unpopular war, um, the First World War. And so despite all those obstacles, the two came together to overcome this opposition that 
was ever present. And in fact, the opponents had argued that this legislation be tabled um, during the, the war. And McLean and Wilson came together and had it was signed on July 3rd, 1918. And I was happy to see that the signatory pen was presented to my great great uncle, um, George P. McLean, when Wilson signed the legislation. Sounds very appropriate. So, what I, I a lot of my audience is birders, it's a birding podcast. Why would a birder be interested in reading this book? What's what? what other than conservation, what what will uh, get their attention? Well, this was really a turning point in the way the world looks at birds. It really was. It, it was the dividing line. And before this, birds could be hunted uh, excessively. There was this mentality of plenty that we had so much abundance of nature that there were no there was no need uh, for controls to stop. Uh, hunting um, by individuals. But what I think this legislation, the importance is, is that um, after the MBTA, we look entirely different way at um, not only birds, but our, the environment. I think this spawned the role that we have today of the federal government as the watchdog for the environment. Um, it led to other legislation like the Endangered Species Act, the Animal Welfare Act, the Bald Eagle Protection Act. These are all instances where the federal government had the power to set national standards for our environment and enforce them. And I think today we, we sort of take that role for granted, but this was all ushered in by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So I think it's a reflection on um, the challenges that we face today um, that we need to still be vigilant, but this role of the federal government as a watchdog really came about as the result of the work that McLean and others did to pass the MBTA in 1918. Well, so have you become more uh, interested in birds or uh, more conservation-minded? How has writing this book affected you? You know, throughout my life, I think there's two constants. You know, we all go through changes and in our life, but I've always loved birds and I've always loved books. And so this um, is, is, a, is a great marriage of those two interests that I've had for my entire life. My father was a, a great birder. Uh, many of my aunts and uncles were birders. Some of them knew George P. McLean um, in their youth. And so I think there's a legacy within my own family to have, um, a real love for birds. And I believe I can trace some of it to McLean um, because they knew him and he loved birds as well. So this has deepened my understanding of the importance of bird protection. Um, it's deepened my respect for what he and others accomplished, the obstacles they faced. I think this was done at a very important point in time. Um, the window was closing on this era of reform. Uh, we were entering into the 1920s when people turned their attention elsewhere from reform measures to peace and prosperity and isolationism. And then in the 30s, we had the Great Depression. And so one of the what if questions that, I, that I've come out of with this book is, um, had this not been signed in 1918, which birds would have gone extinct? 
the, the snowy egret, the flamingo, um, the uh, the whooping crane, all these beautiful birds that we know today, had this legislation not been signed, um, and through the work of McLean and others, um, I, I respect their perseverance and their commitment to making this legislation happen. Yeah, this is a, a federal level. I mean, I grew up in I grew up, grew up as a birder in Tacoma with some really uh, super important local conservationists. You know, just people who helped save Nisqually National Wildlife Refuge, the last really uh, existing uh, estuary in the whole Puget Sound area, uh, and things like that. So I kind of have a feel for what an individual's passion can make a difference on kind of a little local level. But uh, your, your uh, great uncles are great, 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 great uncle. Great, 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 great uncle's uh, passion on a federal level made such a difference. So it's an individual can really make a difference. Yes, I believe that he was the right person who came along at the right time in the right place to do the right thing for birds and for the environment. And I I really believe that um, many of the events in his life prepared and equipped him for this challenge. He was 61 years old when the, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act passed in 1918. And I trace some events that I believe prepared and equipped him for this challenge. Because a lesser uh, person who's not as devoted to a bird protection may not have stayed the course and persevered. But there were many things in his life leading up to um, 1918 that I think um, put him in a position to stay the course and see this very important legislation through. What would what a couple of those things be, do you think? Well, first of all, he um, he had a career in the law that was very broad and deep. Uh, he had his own law firm. He was the federal prosecutor for Connecticut. And these things over a period of time really deepened his knowledge and legal acumen to help come up with this this eventual solution and to understand the inner workings of lawmaking and, and the nuances of, 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 of lawmaking that enabled them to come up with this very creative solution of the Treaty Act. Uh, secondly, um, he had the instinct of a reform politician in many instances in his earlier life. Um, as a state legislator, as governor of Connecticut, he led reforms on many levels and showed great independence. Um, he alienated many people from his own party who thought he was too, um, too much of a progressive reformer as governor and as a legislator. And he faced some really significant defeats in terms of trying to lead reform as governor. And I think that helped um, build his character not to quit on the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, to see it through. Mm-hmm. And also, he learned how to collaborate with others. Uh, one of the themes of my book is it's never easy to lead change. Um, many of us know that personally, firsthand in our jobs or working with a nonprofit organization. And it takes a special kind of person to effectively lead change. And I show in my book the characteristics that he learned over time that enabled him to be this type of effective leader of change. The the third example of the third life experience that I talk about in my book that was important was 
dealing with adversity, um, when he left the governor's office, he fell into a very deep depression because his his reforms were so unsuccessful. He had presidential ambitions that he was seriously hoping to launch a platform being a successful governor to the White House, mm-hmm. and that all of his dreams in, in many ways uh, were interrupted by this time of um, unsuccessful reform as governor. But he found a way back. Uh, he he um, decided he'd run for the Senate, and he put his presidential ambitions aside and said, I'm going to run for the Senate and contribute um, my passions in that context. So in many ways, this is an inspiring story of how someone emerged from a very dark period of his life to his most fruitful. And who doesn't like a comeback story? Yeah, that's good. I mean, all of us have, uh, have, you know, faced times where we had to change our direction of our career, change our dreams, change our thoughts. And it sounds like, thank goodness he did. I mean, you know, it would have been probably harder as president to get this done, that he was in the right place. Sounds like, uh, you know, yeah, you know, pre- president can't run for president as a, to preserve birds. I mean, that's just not a, uh, I mean, you could try, but it's probably not the, the issue that's going to get you elected into a federal office. But uh, as a, as a young Senator, good job. Well, his comeback was not necessary because he was a very wealthy man and in his forties, when he left the governor's office, he could have easily lived the Jay Gatsby lifestyle, the good life. But one of the points I make in my book is that the good life was not enough for him. He wanted a better life. He wanted to bring all of his skills and passions to a new place where he could um, have a significant impact on the society, on birds, um, be a reformer in the context of the U.S. Senate, as opposed to uh, governor or executive office somewhere else. And I admire that, um, the fact that he just didn't walk away from that defeat. Um, and he wanted to return to public service, even though he had unlimited options because of his wealth. So it sounds like this is a story that should have been written a long time ago. What, what happened? How did he become so obscure? Most people know about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and I think the act is probably more important than the individual. And he was of this era of self-effacing leaders. Um, He came from this uh, very established uh, New England background. His his forebearers came in the 1600s, and public service was something he wanted to do. Self-promotion was not part of that. And he died at a fairly young age of 74 and only three years after he left the Senate. So he didn't have time um, to write his memoirs. Um, There's been some doubt as to what happened to his papers. Um, His widow did not want a book written about him for whatever reason that we we don't know. Um, One of my uncles wanted to have a biography written about him, but she would not finance that and nor would she cooperate with that. So that's one of those mysteries in my family that um, we don't know why she was against the idea. But um, as a result, I think he became quite obscure even within my own family. And so this was a a way for me to try to 
reconstruct what we know about him from the public record and some writings that I was able to uncover of his and letters that he wrote and elsewhere. Did he have any really strong allies in the Senate or politically? And in, in, was it just him against him trying to drag everybody along tooth and nail? He worked very collaboratively with some of his fellow, fellow senators. Um, it was a bipartisan achievement. He had some very vocal opponents, though, that, um, and in fact, a senator from Missouri, uh, Missouri was one of the great sports um, hunting states in the country. And I, I'd show some exchanges he had with the Senator James Reed from Missouri, who made a statement to the effect of, why do we care about egrets? They live in swamps, they eat tadpoles, and the only thing they're good for is to adorn the hats of our beautiful ladies. And so I think there was the way in which he dealt with his opponents and trying to disarm them. Um, it's funny, his wife played bridge with James Reed's, Reed's uh, wife. Mm -hmm. So even though they were opponents, um, McLean was civil to them. And he saw the importance of building alliances and collaborating as more important than trying to alienate other people. If Senator McLean was uh, alive today, what do you think he'd think of uh, the status of conservation uh, law and uh, how the birds have done since then? What, would he be pleased? Would he be surprised? What do you think? The most revealing statement that he made to put that question in context is that he said, it has been my dream that the people of the United States would realize the importance of our birds before it is too late. And I am proud to say that progress has been made in that direction. He wrote that in 1915. So I take that as a, an example that it was progress that he was happy about. And I think he would continue to want to see progress um, in this era. We have different challenges than, than they did there. But the idea that birds were important, that's the other key word of his statement, that people would realize the importance of our birds before it's too late, and that he was happy to see progress. So I believe that he would continue to support the direction that the Migratory Bird Treaty Act has taken, that the threats are different, but we still, but birds are still important. Um, they're important for so many reasons. Um, they, they keep our ecosystems running smoothly. They're the canary in the coal mine. So if there's something wrong with birds, there's probably something greater wrong in the entire environment. But they also connect us to nature and they give us so much aesthetic pleasure. They're endlessly fascinating to look at, their songs, their migratory habits. And so for these and other reasons, they're important. And I think he would want to stay the course today as we are now in uh, enforcing this legislation to protect birds and to do so um, despite opposition. Um, I think we have to continue to be vigilant about bird protection. And that's why I'm so passionate about supporting groups like the Audubon Society and others, because they're on the front line um, every day uh, fighting different battles to preserve these beautiful um, creatures that we all love. 
Well, I cannot wait to read this book. I uh, I ordered it, uh, I think, on Amazon or somehow, and it uh, it's I've uh, been traveling for the last week, and it was on my mail uh, on my uh, porch when I got up this morning, and I just got a chance to glance at. It. I can't wait to read about it. I'll uh, I'll maybe in an introduction to a future podcast, I'll give my little book review after I get a chance to read it. I you know, would would like to have done that before this, but it didn't happen. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks for being on the podcast with me. If somebody wants to get this book, what is it? it sounds like it's pretty widely available what's the best way the easiest way to get it is through amazon um, my publisher's website the rochester institute of technology press is another place um, they would probably like people to buy it from them but amazon is is certainly the easiest way to get it and i appreciate your um, spending time with me today i've enjoyed talking with you and i hope you sense the passion i have for this subject and how I think birders will have a much deeper appreciation for the people who came before us to put us in the position that we are today. There's that cliche that we stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, I think this is a, an example of that. There were people who came before us that fought the fight to get us to this point. And now we need to stay vigilant to follow through on the work that they established for us. Well, snowy egrets are a pretty cool bird. My first day of birding was in the Everglades, and I, I'm guessing, I don't know exactly where, but I'm guessing snowy egret is one of the first 15 or 20 uh, species that I uh, put on my life list, uh, mm -hmm. and they are a beautiful bird uh, and not uncommon at, at this point in time in, in the right habitat and range, uh, and we can thank, uh, I'm sure others too, but uh, your great-great-uncle for uh I thank him for uh, letting me see a snow egret. I'm guessing they would have been, I'm sure they were easy, easily been extinct without this. Yeah, they were definitely on the fast track. These birds that had very uh, loose feathers, you know, showy feathers that people wanted to put on hats and so on. Those were the ones that were being excessively hunted. And uh, yes, I, 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 I think that he would probably say it was a team effort. There were many, many people involved, these Audubon societies that were created to stop this kind of hunting. Um, but certainly from a leadership standpoint in creating this federal legislation, um, I believe he and, and a few others really deserve to be recognized for that important contribution. Yeah, I think we can also be, I'm sure the fact that he didn't need a, a lot of uh, political contributions and support from a lot of uh, wealthy donors and that sort of thing, uh, they had some independent wealth that allowed him the the freedom to pursue his passion in the, as well as he did. So there's a lot of things that came together just right, and I'm sure glad they did. Can't wait to read this book. And Will, it's been fun talking to you. I didn't really know what to expect, and I you exceeded expectations for sure. Well, thank you, Ed. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. I can tell we're both bird lovers, and um, it's always nice to, to share my passion with like-minded people. Thanks so much. You take care, Will. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 162 with Will McLean Greeley. I hope you enjoyed hearing about his experiences with writing about his great-great-uncle, the Birdman of the Senate, and the force behind the passage of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. I've written a blog post with more information about the book and the topic, and will include a link in the podcast notes to both the blog post and to where you can get the book on Amazon and the publisher's website if you're interested in reading it too. Thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day.